And I'm excited we're going to be in our second week of our series through First Timothy that we're calling In This House, because throughout the book of First Timothy, what we're going to be talking about is sort of the house rules of the body of Christ, the values that guide us in how we move together as God's people. And so we're going to be in First Timothy chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to First Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to start off by reading the passage together before we start to walk through it. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully you got a bulletin on the way in, and in the insert, it has the verses that we'll use, and the verses will also be up here on the screen behind me as I read them. So I'm going to start reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 11, starting in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks and thank you that you are a God of glory. In fact, you're, you're the glorious God who's given us the gospel of Jesus. We pray that you lead us through this time. I pray that you lead me by the power of your spirit in everything that I say. I pray that you lead all of us as a church family to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So about six months ago, we were all sitting around the dinner table, and my youngest son, David, who was six at the time, asked a question. His question was, where is your soul? Now, this was exciting. I mean, as a Christian parent, you want your kids to be interested in the gospel. You want your kids to be interested in, in the Bible and in spiritual things. So I was pumped up. My six-year-old just asked a question about the soul. This is great. I went to seminary. I read my Bible. I'm a pastor. This is the moment I've been preparing for. So I was ready to go. And so I start into it. And I say, well, well, David, the, the soul is not a part of ourselves that we can see, 
because the way that God has made us, you know, part of us is physical and that's our body that you can see, but part of us is invisible and, and that's our spirit and, and that's kind of our, our personality and the things that we love and our emotions and I'm walking through, you know, there's physical and the, the spiritual and, and in, in the Bible, the way that the soul, the word soul is used, is it usually describes the whole person, physical and spiritual. So the soul isn't a part of yourself that you see, the soul is just sort of the whole person. And I get done with my little spiel and I wait. And David says, my teacher said that the soul is on your foot. (laughs) So it took me a second after he said it to realize what had happened to realize that this brilliant sermonette that I had just given him was completely wasted. And it wasn't because there was, wasn't an internal logic. I had an internal logic to every step that I took along the way. It was because I started with a mistake. I started by thinking he was asking a question about the eternal soul of man when he was asking a question about the soul of the foot. I started with the wrong premise. I didn't start with the truth. And because I didn't start with the truth, every step I took, as much as it made sense to me at the time, every step I took led me further and further off base. Now, I want you just to think about something for a minute. That mistake, me believing something that was not true, that cost me some thoughts, cost me about three minutes of my time, cost me a little bit of my dignity, It it wasn't a terribly costly thing in the end of all that. But I want you to think about the idea that there are certain things where if you don't believe the truth, it can cost you a lot more. There are certain areas where if you don't believe the truth, it can cost you a major life decision. It can cost you because you end up making unwise or selfish decisions with your money. It can cost you a marriage because you decide to chase temporary happiness instead of God's eternal good for you. It can can cost you friendships because you've ensouled the message that you need to stand up for yourself at all costs and clear your own space. In fact, if we really read the Bible closely, we find out that not believing the truth can cost you eternally. It can be the difference between heaven and hell. All throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, the consistent message is there is deception everywhere. There are lies all over the place. And what we're going to talk about this morning in the second core value, in the second house rule through the series through 1 Timothy, is that as the people of God, as the adopted family of God through Jesus Christ, one of our house rules is that we cling to the truth. We value the truth not just because we want to have the right answers. We cling to the truth because if you don't start with the truth, every step that you take leads you further and further off base. And one of the important things that we need to talk about real quick with this is that there's some of us in here that we've been Christians a long time and so we think, no, I'm, I'm solid. I'm solid in the truth. I've solidly placed my faith in who Jesus is. I solidly believe that the Bible is God's word. I'm solid. So unless something dramatic changes, I'm fine. 
What we're going to see throughout this message today, though, is that clinging to the truth is always an active practice. There are too many people who have appeared to be utterly solid in their faith, who have made a train wreck of their lives because of buying into a lie that they didn't see coming. There are too many people who have been a part of churches that have eventually abandoned not only the church, but abandoned their faith because they got too casual and ended up believing in a lie, clinging to the truth as a church and as individual believers in Jesus is always an active practice. And so here's what it's going to look like as we walk through the verses that we already read, verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1. We're going to get some powerful insight in this passage into how we recognize the truth versus the lies, how we recognize the gospel, the pure undefiled gospel of Jesus versus the cheap imitations that we're given. And the way that we're going to see it is by walking through two questions that seem to guide Paul in how he talks to Timothy. The first question has to do with the different starting points of true and false teaching. And the second question has to do with the different ending points of true and false teaching. So we'll start with the first. We'll start with the starting point. And the question that seems to be at the center of what Paul says in verses three and four is, is the starting point self or God? Now, I mean this in two ways, and you're going to see this as we walk through the verses. The the first way that I mean it is this. Is the source of the content of the message something that somebody has made up or that you could only discover through their brilliant knowledge? Or is it something that comes through somebody carefully looking at what God has said and bringing that message? Is the source self for God? But the other thing that you're going to see in walking through this is that most false teaching is completely focused on the self, where the gospel of Jesus is completely focused on what God himself has done for us. So let's look at it, starting in verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can make command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. And so we don't know the full timeline of everything that happened in this, but the basic premise that Paul talks about is apparently he and Timothy were both in Ephesus together, serving, starting churches, preaching the gospel. And we know of at least two times in Acts that Paul was in Ephesus, one time for about two and a half years. So he had an extended stay there. So at some point, it was time for Paul to move on because other churches needed to be started. The gospel needed to be preached in Macedonia. But at the time, Paul said, it's important that Timothy stays behind. And he's reaffirming in the letter now. He's saying, I told you to stay behind. I still want you to stay there. And the reason that I want you to stay there is so that you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. There's lies. There's deception going on in Ephesus. And Timothy, you need to stay to sort it out. In fact, we get some insight as you walk through this. Just think of what he says in verse 3. It gives us some insight into what's going on specifically with this. Because he doesn't tell Timothy, go and combat the false doctrines. He doesn't say, go give the counterpoint to these. He says, command them to stop teaching these things. Which implies the idea that this was not some outside religious sect that Paul was concerned with. 
This was largely an internal problem. If Timothy is going to go up to somebody from a completely different religious perspective or somebody who doesn't have a religious perspective at all and he's going to command them to stop teaching, are they going to stop teaching? Why would they listen to Timothy? But the idea that Paul seems to think, Timothy, if you go up to these guys and you say, Paul told me to command you to stop, the person who's going to stop is the person that has at least some connection to the idea that Paul has authority and that they call themselves insiders in the Christian faith. Now, Paul was concerned with deception in his day. It's not only in this letter, it's all throughout all of his letters. He's concerned with people being led astray. Um, By the way, the danger is no less present today. There are lies everywhere. Sometimes we're listening to something or we're reading something and we're conscious that we're getting a message. We're conscious that we're reading a book and we're thinking, all right, this book has a message and I'm going to be discerning about it. Or we're conscious that we're listening to a podcast and we're saying, I'm going to be discerning about what I get here. We need to recognize that we passively take in messages all day long. Every pop-up from the internet that comes up on your screen has a message. Every billboard that you pass when you're driving has a message. Every advertisement that you hear or see or watch has a message. And some of them are, are fairly neutral messages, but most of them are not. Most of these messages are reinforcing something that in some way combats the truth that we're trying to, trying to hold to. Most advertising has a basic premise. You should go out and get whatever you feel like in the moment. In fact, in the moment, we're going to suggest you feel like having our product. You feel like having this food. You feel like having this toy. You feel like having this thing. You feel like going to this restaurant. You feel like booking this ticket. The entire premise, we're being constantly pelted with the message, you know what? Yeah, I do deserve it. You know what? Yeah, I am important enough. You know what? To heck with all this stuff. You know what? I should just go for now. I should just fulfill my impulses now. That consistent lie that we get is absolutely contrary to the gospel. And it's important. But just as dangerous and and sadly sometimes just as common is that the false messages that we're going to receive are not just messages from out there. They're going to be messages parading as something from the inside. Just as dangerous as somebody with a totally contrary, overtly contrary message to the gospel is the danger of somebody who has a verse. Just that one verse sometimes has a verse and speaks through the grid of that one verse and all that they say. In fact, look at it at the beginning of verse four. We get another insight into the idea that this was sort of an inside job because Paul talks about the idea that they've devoted themselves to uh, to myths and endless genealogies. And myths, when we think of myths, we're thinking of Aesop's fables and Grimm's fairy tales. That's not quite the idea here. It's just something that's not true. So it's not very specific. But when he gets more specific, he talks about endless genealogies. Now, if you've read the Old Testament... Are there some genealogies in there? There's a lot of genealogies in there. We finished going through the book of Genesis last year and this year. Lots of genealogies in Genesis. And Paul is saying these false teachers, they get transfixed on these. The problem is not with the genealogy. 
The problem is that they've ended up focusing in on one thing in the Bible. And and for them, that would have been the Old Testament at the time. They focused in on one thing in the Bible and they've made it the whole thing. They've ended up taking something and usually out of context, twisted it a little bit, looked at it sideways, slanted their eyes, and they've said, now look what I've discovered. I've discovered a secret that was previously unnoticed. And that secret that was previously unnoticed, it's really appealing because it's fun to be in on something new and it's flattering to feel like we're in on a secret. That's what was going on with these. It's dangerous to have a completely contrary message. It's also dangerous when somebody just has a verse. It was dangerous then and it's dangerous now. In fact, let let me give you an example of how this could happen today. It's a great verse in Philippians chapter four. The verse, the, the apostle Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great verse. Verse some of you have memorized, some of you are familiar. Great verse. Somehow every Christian athlete and every Christian motivational speaker knows this verse. This verse was discovered and then it was tattooed on people's arms. And then it was stitched on pillows and then it was put on posters. And suddenly you have the whole idea of I can bench 400 pounds because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can throw a football 70 yards and you know why? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I may have only a little bit of money in this business and I may not have a lot of know-how, but this business is gonna be wildly successful. You know why? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Suddenly this verse becomes the grid. It becomes the one verse, like the only verse that's known. And it becomes a sort of self-actualization. I have the power within me because of Jesus to do whatever I set my mind to do. And you know what? Maybe even if I have major health problems, I'm gonna get past them. And not by doctors and not by physical therapy, but by the fact that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a danger to just having a verse. Now, let me just say, the danger is not with the verse. The verse is a good verse. In fact, you want me to tell you right now what the verse actually means? Because it doesn't mean I can bench press 400 pounds through Christ who strengthens me. What's going on in Philippians chapter four is that Paul is talking about the fact that there are times in his life where he has had nothing where he has been bereft, he's had absolutely no money, his friends have all abandoned him, he's been poor, he's been hungry, he's been in prison. There are times of his life where that's been what his life is like. And then he says, there have also been times in my life when I have had plenty. When the money has come in from people who are supporting me and I have a full stomach and I'm I'm not in prison, I'm among friends and life is going really well. And Paul says, I've learned how to live in the plenty and in the lack. I've learned how to follow Jesus and not be swept up in riches when things are going well. And I've learned how to follow Jesus when I have nothing and not to be swept away by bitterness. And as the culmination, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live free from temptation when I'm rich and I can live free from bitterness when I'm poor. The problem is not with the verse. The problem is when you've got a verse and you make it the whole thing. Beware of the preacher who has one verse. Beware of the book that's based on one verse. 
Beware of the idea that just because somebody has a Bible verse that they're quoting doesn't mean that they are telling you the whole story. In fact, this is one of the reasons why constantly at Life Bible Fellowship Church, we're encouraging people to read the Bible and to read the Bible in big chunks. And we've got another Bible reading plan that we'll be starting up on July 1st. It's so that you'll be aware, so that you won't be swept away by the idea that somebody's shouting about one verse when there's a whole of scripture that that context comes in. The Apostle Paul says they end up getting astray on myths and endless genealogies. And he says all, these, all this does is it promote, promotes controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And, and the word that he uses there for God's work, it, it's, it's translated, it could be translated in different ways. One of the ways it could be translated is sort of God's order. The way that God has set things up. He said, all right, we've got myths and we've got deception. And then we have the teacher that starts with God and that starts with God's authority and says, my job is not to come up with a brave new idea that will get people's attention. My idea, my job is simply to say what God has said, to embrace the humility of God's order, which he says comes by faith which again points towards the idea that the way that you end up in God's family is not that you discovered the secret. The way that you get into God's family is by faith. And the message of the gospel involves us, but it's not even primarily about us. The message of the gospel is primarily about God. We'll go through this next week, but Paul says later on in this chapter, in the passage that we'll walk through next week, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I know I just said, beware of the person that has one verse. That's a verse that's pretty close to the core right there. That's a verse that's pretty close to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 when he said, the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The consistent message of the scripture is that right at the center is not some self-actualization by me. It's not the message that I can do it. It's the message that God did it through Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm in the family, not because I looked hard enough until I discovered a secret in the Bible. I'm in the family because I've placed my faith in Jesus. I've thrown myself on his mercy and I've been welcomed into the family by his good grace. If the message starting point is self, because the authority is all about the self or the message is all about the self, beware. But if the message starts with the authority of God's word and ends up in a message about what God has done through Jesus, suddenly we find ourselves in the right place. Suddenly we find ourselves reinforcing what we sang earlier. Did you take in the words we sang earlier? This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. That is the gospel of Jesus. And Paul is telling us to cling to it. So there's a problem with the starting point, but he's going to talk about the ending point also. And here's the question that he's going to ask about the ending point. Is the ending point love or chaos? In other words, what is the result of this message? What is the result of this teaching that we're being asked to embrace? Does it lead to sacrificial love one for the other or does it lead to chaos and conflicts? And Paul says in verse five, the goal of this command, 
When he says the goal, it kind of has to do with the idea of, of the end, the natural end of this command, the natural end of the gospel of Jesus is love. And not just love, love from a pure heart that's been cleansed and forgiven. Love from a good conscience where we're guided by God and his word into what's right and wrong and we're choosing faith in Jesus all the way. Love from a sincere faith where we're not faking it. And by the way, you can only fake love for so long. And that's because love, biblically, is not just warmth, it's not just politeness, and it's not just tolerance. Love is sacrifice for one another. So when Paul says the goal of the command is love, he's saying, here's what's going to come if you embrace the gospel of Jesus. You're going to have a church where people are going to be sacrificing for each other. You're going to have a church where when somebody's sick, the other people around them are going to gather around and find ways to take care of them. They're going to bring them meals. They're going to help them out financially. They're going to pray for them. They're going to give, give them support. It means when one person is struggling, the other people are there. People are sacrificing of their money, of their time, of their resources, of, of just the, their mental and their thoughts and everything going into it. There's going to be a church filled with sacrificial love if there's a church that embraces the gospel of Jesus. And here's why. It's because when we embrace the gospel, we are embracing the idea that we are loved by God. And the only thing that will truly set you free to love other people is if you really, at your core, believe you are loved by God. When I was in high school, I played water polo. And uh, I wasn't great and I wasn't terrible. I, I was kind of in the middle. And so going into my senior year, it wasn't clear that I was going to be a starter on the team. And I really, really wanted to be a starter. It was really important to me that my senior year, I was a starter on the water polo team. And then um, a kid from another school transferred onto our team and he was pretty good. And uh, you know, if you're on a team that you want to be successful and a new kid transfers in who's pretty good, shouldn't you be happy about it? (laughs) Was I happy about it? No, I wasn't happy about it. This was a threat. I'd worked really hard. It was at the point, I think I can do this. I think I can be a starter on this team. Suddenly I have somebody else on the team who's a threat to the plans that I have for this. And I remember, I'm not proud of this at all. I I just, I remember my thoughts the entire time. I remember looking at a teammate and rooting for his failure. I remember times, because this guy, he, um, w- when we would shoot at the, at the goal, he, was, he had a much stronger arm than I did, so he could really whip the ball in there, but he was also wild, so sometimes he'd go up to shoot and the ball would just go way off to the side, and I remember seeing that and being like, that's right, that's right, <laughs> rooting for his failure, <laughs> because he is a threat to me. Now, this didn't happen, but imagine my coach would have come up to me and said, Dan, here's what I want you to know. You're a starter on the team, and nothing's going to change that. Your spot on this team as a starter is rock solid, and I don't care what any other player does, you're a starter on the team, nothing is ever going to change that. This other teammate then came up to me and said, I'm having a little bit of trouble with my shot, can you give me a hand? Suddenly, what am I going to say? I said, of course, I'll give you all the help that you need. I'll do everything, I'll work, I'll do drills with you. I don't care what it takes. I will do everything that I can to help you be a better player. Why am I suddenly gonna do that? It's not a threat anymore. It's not some deep, noble thing, but I'm secure. I don't have to fend for myself. I don't have to worry about myself. I am secure on my spot on the team so I can feel free to care about other people. 
you are not simply secure as a starter on a high school sports team. You are secure forever as a child in the family of God. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever threaten that. No person who bothers you, no person who annoys you, no person even who wrongs you can ever threaten that reality. And that means that you now, by the love of God, have been set free to love other people. The gospel leads to love. False teaching leads to chaos. And that's what Paul talks about starting in verse six. He says, some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. In other words, what he's saying here, he's again pointing towards the idea of these are sort of insiders. They're not claiming a different religion. They're claiming to speak for God. They're talking about the law. They're talking about the Old Testament. So they're talking about these things. It's not leading to love. It's leading to conflicts and meaningless talk. They're really concerned. They really want to be viewed as teachers of the law. But he says two things. He says, they don't know what they're talking about and they don't know what they so confidently affirm, which by the way, also means just because a teacher is passionate doesn't mean that they're right. They are confidently affirming what they're saying. And you could pause and say, well, what are they saying? We get some insight into it because Paul goes on a little rabbit trail here and he talks about the law. He says, they don't understand the law. So let me tell you a little bit about the law and how it's used rightly. Verse eight, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Once again, the idea is not, the problem is not that somebody has a verse. The verse is good. The law is good, but it's got to be used properly, which means it can be misused. It can be used improperly. He says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. Paul's saying something really profound here that we need to not miss. And here's what he seems to be implying. He seems to be implying that the false message that's going out is, we found all the rules, we found all the rules, and if you do all the rules, that's when God welcomes you in. If you keep all the rules and if you do it all really well, like we're doing it, that's when you're in and that's when you're secure. This is not a new message. This is an old message. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament to when the people of Israel received the Ten Commandments, you want to know what they said? They said, these laws are great. We will always keep them. Yeah. And some of you are laughing because you've read the rest of the Old Testament. And the rest of the Old Testament is just case after case of utter failure of the people of Israel. Knowing a rule doesn't give you the power to follow the rule. These false teachers are basically saying, we know the rules, that's all we need. And Paul says, the law wasn't given for the righteous. In other words, the law wasn't given so that you would live up to it and suddenly become righteous. The law was given for lawbreakers and rebels. The law was given not so that you'd follow it and become righteous. The law was given so that you would fail at it and realize you need a savior. And he rattles off a list of the people who the law is for, for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality. And let me pause here, because this is obviously a hot button issue that I just mentioned here. Whole bunch of things in this list, but this is the one that we we sort of stand back and say, wow, that's jarring in our culture. To have Paul say, talking about those who practice homosexuality as a sinful, rebellious lifestyle. And so let me just make a couple comments on this. 
Um, the first is that some people will, will see this here in, in verse 10, and they'll see it in other passages in the New Testament, and they'll say, what, what's, what he's talking about here is not consensual, uh, a consensual um, relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Um, what, what this is talking about is some kind of coerced sexual relationship between like an older man and a younger man. And so that's what he's really condemning. And the bottom line is, is that that simply isn't true. This is the normal word that is used for a consensual male homosexual action. Um, and, and in Romans, Paul talks about this again. He talks about this with women also. So it's not just men. He sees this as a problem. This is consistent with all other scriptural teaching on this. So first of all, that is really what it's talking about. Second of all, there can be a temptation for us to see that. And we can say, why is he picking on the gays? Why is he picking on homosexuality? Why single this out? And what I just want to say is, did he just single this out? He didn't single this out. And you're like, well, this is not fair. People who are gay just got dinged here. Did anybody not get dinged by what we just read? Did anybody not get hit by this? If you haven't yet, let me just read the rest. For slave traders and liars and perjurers. Anybody okay now? And if you're like, yeah, I'm okay now, well, Paul says, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. We are all in this boat together. And so, so there can be this strange thing that we do now where we're like, so, so you're saying if I'm gay, I'm going to hell? So you're saying if, I, if, if a man has sex with another man that he's going to hell? And that is actually the complete wrong way of looking at this. What he's saying is that all of these things don't mean if you've done this thing, you've, you go to hell. All of these things mean if you've done that thing, you need a savior. If you've done any of these things, you need a savior. If you lie, you need a savior. If you haven't had any kind of extramarital sexual affair, you need a savior. If you've been rebellious in any way towards God, you need a savior. If you've stolen anything, you need a savior. He is in no way singling this out as some special sin that God's just really particular about and God doesn't like. No one goes to hell because of a specific sin that they've committed. People go to hell because of an absolute unwillingness to embrace the Savior that God has sent for us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and we're all in that boat. You can see he ends verse 10 by talking about all these sins and all these practices as being contrary to the sound doctrine. Look at how he ends this passage. To the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. And then look at how he explains the gospel. The gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, this is a great statement as I just read it, but I don't want us to miss something beautiful because Paul uses kind of a strange way to describe God here. Not the most frequent way. He calls him the blessed God. You know what another totally legitimate way to translate that is? The happy God. We may think of God as a lot of different things. We may think of God as being very particular. We may think of God as being angry. And there are times that God is angry. We may think of God as being powerful, and he is powerful. When you think of God, do you think of him as being happy? Paul says the true gospel is the gospel of the glory of the happy God. God is a God of joy. In fact, God is a God who is so overflowing with joy that he decided to bring all of us in on the joy. 
God is so overflowing with happiness that he's brought us into the family so that we can share in his happiness. In fact, just if some of you are like, but you said just one verse, we shouldn't focus on just one verse. All right, let me give you another verse. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 15. He said, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Jesus doesn't simply say to them, I'm telling you these things so that you'll embrace the gospel and be happy. He's saying, I'm telling you these things so that you embrace the gospel and you share in the happiness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is the happy God. In fact, God was happy before we ever came around. Isn't it good news that God's happiness doesn't depend on you? Thank God. (laughs) He's, He's happy either way. He's enjoying complete fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having joy in his creation, having joy in who he is, and he invites us to get in on it. Let me, let me tell you just one other way to think about this. Have you ever walked into a room and instantly realized that the people there were glad to see you? Man, there's nothing like that. There's nothing as beautiful as that as getting somewhere and realizing that a person or people were happy to see you. I love, there are times that I walk into my house and all the kids are distracted by other things. And so, you know, it's like a ghost town. I'm like, I'm home. And they, they don't care because they're doing other things. There are times that I get home and I'm instantly greeted by people who want to hug me. There's nothing like being in a place where people are happy to see you. And I know that this could sound in some ways kind of cheesy or cheap, but I want you really to embrace this idea. When you pray, God is happy to hear from you. When you are approaching God, he is happy to see you. And you know what? He's the happy God. He's the happy God who spread his happiness to all who sent his son to bring us in on his joy. The center of the gospel is not about us. It's about God. It's about God saving sinners through Jesus. And part of the great news about that is that God is the happy God, not the particular God who keeps us at arm's length, but the happy God who brings us close. And, you know, friends, when we talk about clinging to the truth and talk about the fact that this is active, I just want to say, you know, there's no better way to spot a counterfeit than by knowing the truth inside and out. Our calling as Christians is not to know every false teaching. Our calling as Christians is to know the truth of the gospel so well that we recognize the counterfeit. Read the scriptures. Read them consistently. Be involved. Stay committed to your church family so that you're regularly hearing the gospel. Stay committed to your Bible study or to your small group so that you're consistently hearing the gospel. Stay committed to reading God's word so that you're constantly experiencing the gospel and so that you're not going to be led astray by somebody who has a verse because you know all the verses. You know how this fits together. But let me take it even a step further. Because you could listen to what I just said right there and you could say, all right, he's telling us, soak in the scriptures so that you know the right answers. And that's good. I'll I'll even say it right now. Yes, do that. Soak in the scriptures so that you know the right answers. But the second thing that I want to say is, soak in the scriptures so that you know the happy God. Soak in the scriptures so that you're reveling in the grace that God has poured out in Jesus. Soak in the scriptures so that God's joy has become contagious to you. Where would you rather be than with somebody who's glad to see you? The God of the universe 
is glad to see you. And the God of the universe is anxious to spread his joy more and more to his children. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but but let me just say a word before I pray. There's going to be some people who are up here um, over to to your right who will be up at the front ready to pray with those who want to pray. There will be others of us just out back ready to do this also. Um, It's possible there's something that I've said today in in some way. Maybe it was something in the list of sins that you're sort of like, I'm jarred by that. I, I need a further conversation. Maybe it's even something about this where you're saying, I want to believe in a God who's happy. I just don't know if I can. If this has pricked something in you that you say, I need prayer, I need a conversation, I need this not to end right now. Don't leave because God is working in you. The spirit is working in you. Don't leave without tracking that down and having a brother or sister to talk to or to pray with. Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you so much that you are not only the powerful God, not only the creator God, but you are the blessed God. That you are the God who spreads your joy to us. We're so unworthy of this. We are the sinners who you came to save. We are the people who are condemned by the law and recognize we need a savior. Thank you that you have done the work of bringing us into your family. And Father, I pray for any of us who have begun to believe in lies, have begun to be deceived in the ways that we're living and the ways that we're thinking. Father, expose those lies and root them out. Give us the boldness, one to the other, of calling out those lies when we hear them in one another, and give us the humility to receive this. Father, give us a passion for your word, not just as a task that we need to read it, but as getting in on the joy that you have poured out through Jesus. And we pray in his name, amen.